Welcome to the Alem Talks podcast, where we bring leaders together to talk about Black life, Black leadership, Black learning, and Black lifestyle. We are your ultimate lunch break. Welcome back, y'all. I told you we'd come back. So listen, we have another special guest here at Alem Talks. I'm so excited to introduce you all to the one and only Dr. Vanessa Hintz. Not Heinz, Hintz. Like, take a hint. Thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Dr. Vanessa. Is Dr. Vanessa okay? Yes, that's what I prefer, actually. Perfect. All right. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your practice? Absolutely. So I'm a licensed psychologist, which means I just went to all the school, paid all the money, got all the debt. <laughs> yes. So I maintain a private practice in Milwaukee at Cornerstone. Okay. In addition, I teach at Alverno College in their community psychology program. And my other job, I'm a diversity and equity consultant. So I go in and just talk to people about life and how they should not be doing what they're doing pretty much, be more equitable and more just. I am here for this. So we have got a special treat for y'all. Today's episode, Rest is Reparations. Mm. Mm. Listen, I Mm. cannot wait to dive in. So I came across the NAP ministry a couple years ago that was founded in 2016 by Trisha Hersey. And it's an organization that examines the liberating power of naps, right? Mm. I think as Black people, we feel like we can never sit We can never rest. We can never take a break. Even if we take a day off, we're still going to be checking email and doing all the things and not really resting. Mm -hmm. And so something that Ms. Hersey said is that we have a legacy of exhaustion, Mm. right? And rest, taking a break, is a key to connecting to the wisdom of our ancestors and creating a new world. It's really pushing back against white supremacy and capitalism that we just always got to be on the move. As Black people, we can never stop. And I think that that's where grind culture kills us. Mm. And that's where it's like, oh, I'll sleep when I die. But we die quick. Man. Right? Mm -hmm. And so just in that little snippet, with your background as a psychologist, what are some of your immediate thoughts when you think about this idea of like, Take a break. Mm-hmm. Well, first and foremost, you're going to die a lot sooner if you don't sleep. So just keep that in mind. When everybody says I'll sleep when I die, it's going to be sooner than you think if you don't sleep. I think also what initially struck me is sort of like the intergenerational basis of that, right? Like, I think we are, as Black people, always fighting against negative stereotypes. Yeah. So if we take a break, we're leaning into the you lazy, you don't do nothing stereotype. And yes. so if we want to not be considered a welfare queen or a lazy or a not productive member of society, we have to do all the things all the time. And if we're talking about Black women, that's on a totally different level, which I don't know if we'll get there, but that's a whole different thing. I mean, I think we're going to have to. Mm. I, I think we're going to have to because I just feel like even if we think about this through the lens of Black women, you have to mom like a pro and mom like you don't have a job, work like you don't have kids, wife like you are the boss and you got the juice, but then the priority list puts you at the bottom. And so what does taking a break look like? And if you're here, where are the kids? Mm. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. we can't catch a break, but then I think it almost feels like it's embedded into our DNA 
to not take a break. And I know for me, as a business owner, if I would take a nap, I would be like, why are you napping? You do not need a nap. You need to get busy. But do you think all of that is driven by, especially with your DEI background, is all of that driven by stereotypes? I would say a large majority of it is. So I think if we're speaking about women in general, right? So like modern day women are asked to do more than ever before because number one, we don't live in a society a lot of people can sustain just like a one-income household. So the days of, I'm going to just stay home and kick it, that's long gone, <laughs> particularly if you went to any kind of college. Right. I mean, you have any sort of debt, like that's not a thing. And so women are doing a lot more. They're out of the home a lot more. And yet still called on to do all the things in the home, right? The so, second shift. Yep. Take care of the kids, take care of the home. And on top of that, you better keep your body right. You better keep your spirit right. You better keep your mental health right. You better drink some water. Like all of this stuff, right? <laughs> Pour coconut oil on your whole Man, life. And twist your hair every night. Like <laughs> It's a lot. And so when you add the intersection of race for Black women, Black women today are allowed to do a lot more things than our ancestors were. And so wasting that, you feel a sense of guilt. Like, my ancestors bled for this. They died for this, for me to be able to have these opportunities. And if I don't take them, am I doing them a disservice? Am I disrespecting them? And so when you sort of start to add those layers, yeah. and then let's add in the fact that I can't take a break because I got to work. You know what I'm saying? It's just, right. I do think a lot of it is, again, intergenerational. I think a lot of it is, not wanting to fall into negative stereotypes. And I think a lot of it, when we say intergenerational, I think it's built into who we are. It's how we were raised. Yeah. I mean, my parents were always like, why are you being idle? Get up and get busy. There's so much to do around this house. Or why are you bored? It's like you can't even be bored in peace. Why are you bored? There's so much to do. And so when you think about Black people in general, do you think that maybe we don't do as good of a job taking care of ourselves compared to other races? Or do we actually do just as good of a job? Mm -hmm. I think the way we take care of ourselves is different because we have to take care of ourselves everywhere but in our homes. And when you're talking about for women sometimes, and I won't even gender it, but for some people, not even in your home. Like for some people who don't feel comfortable or safe in their home because of whatever reason, like, when do we get to take care of ourselves? Because as soon as you step out, the world isn't taking care of you. So you always got to sort of be vigilant and ready to go. And the way that we've been allowed to take care of ourselves, the way that we can take care of ourselves sometimes is looked down upon. Like, why are you doing that? You know what I'm saying? By the world. Right. And so where can we be and take care of ourselves other than in our home? But like we just talked about, Sometimes not even there. So like, when are we supposed to live, basically? And so I think that we do what we can do with what we were given, which is just what we've been doing since forever. Right. I think you're right. And it just makes me think about something that you said. The minute we open the door and step out of the house, or the minute we open the laptop and open that little thingy that allows people to see us on video, from that moment, we have to be vigilant, right? And I think... If it's true or if we are imagining it, it just feels like we have to be hyper vigilant at work. Because as Black leaders, we're working in predominantly white spaces. And so if we want to build and cultivate amazing careers that we can be proud of, how do we take care of ourselves at work? <laughs> Where do we start? What does that even look like? Is that even a thing? I'm laughing because 
as a doctoral level psychologist, I'm often the only in many spaces that oh, I'm in. Oh, I'm sure. Many, many spaces. And I think the first thing I always do is like find somebody, like <laughs> yes. wherever they are. I'm like, let me go find somebody. And I'm blessed that in a number of the spaces I'm in, I have those people. And so I think first and foremost is finding your village. Like, I cannot stress that enough because I think just to have people that you can talk to when people come out of pocket, because we know it's going to happen. Oh, of course. We know we're going to be in a space and someone's going to say something and we're going to have to look and like, did she really just say that? And so to be able to have someone to bounce those types of things off of, I think is important. And the other thing that I feel like comes up a lot, I even talk to my students about this. I always say that code switching is my superpower because I feel like so often it can be burdensome. And I think it's something that I do that maybe my white counterparts cannot do. Like I can come from this space to the basketball court, to the corner, to the boardroom, wherever we are. And I feel like I can move and shift in those spaces. And so I invite people to sort of like reflect and rethink and reframe the way we view like that capacity and skill to code switch, because to me, it brings me great pride to be able to do that. But I think sometimes in certain spaces, it's just exhausting. It's very burdensome. And so something as little as reframing the way we view our or the things we have to do in the workplace can be so helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think with code switching, most people actually code switch. Now, the way that we code switch, it might be a little different, but Connor code switches. Because the way he kicks it with his boys when they're at the bar, that's not how he shows up in the boardroom. You know what I'm saying? So he's code switching too. But I do think that when we can find a way to show up, even if we are code switching and still feel coherent, congruent as a leader and authentic to ourselves, because if we button it up to the point where we don't even recognize ourselves, then that's not being authentic. And that's code switching beyond what is potentially called for. But then also knowing your audience, right? You may not have to do all that. Mm -hmm. So what makes sense? Where's the line? Where's the balance? Does this align with who you are, your mission, your vision, your values? And if it takes you too far away and you're too far off the reservation, then that's probably just not a good fit, right? But I think if you still feel aligned with who you are, your purpose, then I think we have to do what works for us. Because I do think that although lots of people think only Black people code switch, everybody code switches. How do you do it in a way that still feels true to you? And I think you use the word authentic, which I think is something that is so important too. Because I feel like in therapy, 99% of the time when I'm working with people, that's what we're working toward is sort of like that. We talk about like walking and living in your truth. Like how do you be authentic in a world that does not want you to do that as a Black person. Girl, listen, first of all, what I've been saying the last like year or two, I said, I'm not blocking my chakras for you. Mm. Like I have to say this. And one of my friends, I was hanging out with my gal pal in Ohio this weekend. And she was like, one thing about you, if people ask, you will tell them the truth. Now, I'm not going to say anything if you didn't ask me. Mm -hmm. But if you're like, hey, Dorothy, do you like this yellow microphone cover? No, Mm -hmm. I don't like it. I like the pink one. But... I wouldn't have said that if you didn't ask me, but I'm not about to block this chakra and be all just, you know what I'm saying? I can't be free mm-hmm. because you asked. And so what's the point in me not being honest and being transparent and being able to have this relationship building moment? Because at least I said the truth in love, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. 
But when I think about this idea of like blocking chakras, not saying anything, always keeping your mouth shut, always feeling like, oh man, I'm offended or that hurt my feelings or that really bothered me or I cannot believe she said that someone needs to talk to her. Do you think that that creates like stress buildup and like, what does it do to us over the long haul? Absolutely. So I feel like we often find ourselves in this cycle of racial stress, which in the worst of circumstances, like leads to racial trauma. But that cycle always starts with these microaggressions that we experience. And I just want to just clarify that micro doesn't mean small. I know a lot of people are like, oh, microaggressions, that's not... Micro doesn't mean small. Micro means on the micro level, so person to person. So it's not small. It's huge, actually. But it occurs person to person. And so... Again, as Black people, we experience microaggressions everywhere. Oh, my God. At work, on the street, watch the TV, like whatever. We experience these microaggressions. Yes. And what happens then is like, okay, for a while, when we come into a new space, it's like, okay, I can deal with this. Like, I'm good. You're coping. You have these strategies that work for you, right? Right. Then those just don't work no more. Because if I have to take a deep breath every 10 seconds, it's going (laughs) to stop being effective. You know what I'm saying? Yes, for sure. And so then that leads to racial stress. And we all know how stress affects the body. And when you think about racial stress, it's inescapable. It's not like, well, if I go do yoga, it's going to be fine. As soon as you leave the yoga studio, it's still going to be there. And so we get into this cycle of like, okay, I'm dealing with it. I'm dealing with it. I'm dealing with it. And then one day we're not. And then that leads to stress buildup. And then ultimately... Burnout? Exactly. And in the most extreme of circumstances, like what we saw last summer, seeing a murder, the murder of George Floyd broadcast over and over and over again, that leads to trauma. And trauma is like stress on steroids in how it affects your body, affects your life. And when you think, again, for Black people, when do we escape that? When I think about like what you're saying and trauma, it just reminds me of like when I go get a massage, right? I go in there and I'm like, I feel great. And I start getting the massage and I think, I'm in pain. I need a whole new body. I need a fresh start. Start me over. New body parts. And so do you think that maybe we're so used to being traumatized that we don't know we're traumatized and we don't know that it hurts? Mm, Yes. And a lot of not to get like nerdy with it, but a lot of models of Black racial identity, part of the sort of coming into your Blackness is around recognizing these systems of oppression and racism that we live in constantly. I think sometimes we shut ourselves off from those as a protective factor because again, like where is the light? Like how do we get out of this? And so I do think that sometimes And I don't want to say like it's negative, like if you don't know, then you don't know. Like not in that way. I just think that sometimes people choose to not worry themselves with that because, again, it's too much. It's a protective factor. Yeah, I definitely think that when you feel the weight of everything, it just feels, of course, heavy. But then it's like you just almost shut down. You don't want to deal with it. And so now I think in the last, definitely during Rona, But even I would say like a year or two leading up to Rona, everyone's talking about self-care this, self-care that, take care of yourself. So the question I have, especially because, well, you're a doctor, is self-care getting your hair done and your nails done? Mm. Or does it go beyond that? Mm -hmm. I definitely think it can be. I think that we do have to sort of like expand our understandings of self-care. And I think it goes back to what you talked about with regard to authenticity, right? Like self-care for you is what it is for you. If you're blessed enough to be like, I'm going to take a day off work. 
do that. If it is, I'm going to go sit in silence in my room for five minutes, that's self-care too. I think it's whatever you need to do for yourself to, again, in an authentic space and in whatever way like relieving stresses for you. And again, for some people, five minutes is all they have. Some people can take a vacation to wherever if we can go somewhere with this Rona situation. But I think it can be getting your nails done. It can be getting your hair done. It can be eating a cookie, like whatever makes you feel better and is going to get those sort of like happy hormones moving throughout your body. Okay. And then do you think, because my question is around the idea of can we get immune if it's the same thing every time? Mm. So like with getting your hair done, you're going to get your hair done regardless. Come rain, shine, Mm -hmm. Rona, Mm -hmm. whatever, Mm -hmm. nails, things like that. And we're doing, I think often we're doing those things, not necessarily in the lens of self-care, but because we just don't want to be out here looking crazy. Yes. Like we want our hair to be done. We want our nails to be done. We want to look presentable. So can self-care be that thing that you need to do that you keep putting off, Mm, right? mm, Like, mm -hmm. I do need to sit for five minutes. I keep saying I don't have five minutes, but time is an illusion. Mm -hmm. Maybe I need to sit for five minutes in the dark and have the meditation app on. Or maybe I do need to meditate myself to sleep or whatever. But the things that we're constantly putting off because it's in the spirit of, I don't have time for myself. Whereas like the nails, we're going to get them done regardless. We're going to get our hair done regardless. But this other piece that is going to contribute to our healing or contribute to unblocking our chakras or whatever it is that we're needing or freeing up some mental space from a work week that's been really heavy where people have said things like, hey, little girl, even though like Mm. I am not little Mm. or... So you didn't feel like combing your hair today, huh? Mm. Or Dorothy always looks like she's going to a funeral or a wedding. Whatever it is, it's just after a week of that, maybe you do need to take that time, but then you keep putting it off, you keep putting it off, and then you keep going back into the workforce and it's killing you softly and strumming your pain. And so I guess my thought is, how do we make time for the thing that we're avoiding? Yes. Yes. And I think what you're pointing to is something I feel like is sort of like an undercurrent of self-care and that's intentionality. And so even if you get your nails done every two weeks, you're intentionally making time for yourself. And so I think that, again, whether it's five minutes, whether it's a weekend vacation, whatever, intentionality, I think, is the basis of self-care because it's like, again, we talked about it at the top, right? We're always doing so much for everyone else why do we have to fall down that list? And so even being intentional, and I know for parents or whatever, like taking five minutes, two minutes for yourself intentionally, not like, ooh, I just found these minutes intentionally. (laughs) Like I'm going to schedule that time just like I schedule everything else. To me is what leads to the sort of intrinsic feelings of satisfaction, calm, whatever you want to call it. Okay. And something that you said earlier was around how We're doing so much more, right? If we look at what we were doing in 1910 versus what we're doing in 2021, I just feel like the amount of stress that we're under, sometimes my parents will like look at my sister and I and be like, why are you stressed? Or why do you just seem so pressed all the time? And I'm like, y'all had an easy life. What? (laughs) I feel like the amount of stress that we're under, the things that we're expected to do, 
is intense. And Dr. Kirkland C. Vaughn, he's a clinical psychologist. He said that when we were watching those killings last year, it reawakened old wounds. And so then if it reawakens the wounds, then we can't put it to rest. So we're unable to resolve past trauma because we're faced with the constant stress of just surviving. And so how do you recover when a wound keeps, someone keeps picking at it, opening it up again, pouring salt in it with a dash of lemon? How do you recover when it just keeps on happening? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think that's part of the insidious nature about racial trauma, because again, it's never ending. It's ever present for the last 400 million years, whatever it's been a thing. And so I think part of even in therapy, right? So when I work with primarily Black folks and a lot of the work that we do is around like, how do I just be Black (laughs) in life? How do I just exist? And I think that getting to a place where we can both recognize our agency in certain situations, right? So that intentionality, like there are situations in my life where I have agency and I can be intentional and be in control. And there's a whole other issue that is not on me to solve. Racism is not a problem for Black people. Racism is a white people problem to solve. Oh, like 1,000%. And so I think that when we can get to the place where we can simultaneously accept the power that we have in situations and absolve ourselves of the responsibilities of others, I think that's how we work towards healing. But I think that is difficult because I think we exist on a spectrum. Some people, again, that put their head in the sand and like, nope, everything's fine. This is fine. We're great. And then people on the other end of the spectrum that just want to burn everybody to the ground, you know, like, let's (laughs) just throw it all away. Right. Throw the whole planet in the trash. Exactly. And so I think wherever you find yourself on that spectrum authentically, I think that's how we start to heal. Again, understanding that I do have power. I don't have to be what the world is calling me to be. And the world messed up. You know what I'm saying? So there's still a lot that needs to be done. Yeah, absolutely. When I think about just the stress of opening the door, getting in the car, maybe filling up the tank and then heading to work, or in the case of a lot of other folks, turning on the laptop, opening that little thingy that we now have to cover up our camera and saying, okay, let me add this little background so that people can't see in my house. I think that in that process, just all of that is stressful. And then I think that there's all these stories that we tell ourselves about who we are, who we're not, who we're supposed to be. And this idea sometimes of feeling like we just have to conform if we want to make it. But in all of these stories that we're telling ourselves or stories that we're telling other people about who they are, who they're not, and who they should be, I think that it just creates this spiral of dying for a paycheck. All of this so that we can go to work and in some instances, fly under the radar and not get noticed. But newsflash, you're Black. We already saw you. I'm sorry, you're not blending. But I think it creates this vicious spiral, right? Because some of the stories, yes, they might be true, but some of the other stories are stories that we just have been telling ourselves, and it's not true. But regardless, it's like this tornado that we're caught up in, and then now we're in this vicious cycle, dying for this golden paycheck, going to this place that wasn't designed with us in mind, right? When corporate America was created, they weren't like, okay, how can we be inclusive? How can we build a place where everyone can shine and feel connected and safe and belong? 
That wasn't the thought. It was how do we, when we all look alike and we set this up, how do we feel connected? How do we feel safe? How do we belong? So knowing that some of the stories are totally true, some of the stories are totally false, how do we get out of the spiral? Mm-hmm. Well, I think everybody could benefit from therapy. That's just a plug there. Yes, therapy. Therapy can be proactive. It doesn't have to be reactive. You don't have to wait until something happens. You can go just because you want to be proactive about your experiences. And I think, again, a lot of what comes up for me with clients in therapy is this issue of valuing. So do you have more value if you have more money? And I don't mean like monetary value. I mean, your worth as a person. Does it go up and down the way your paycheck does? I think a lot of us are in that cycle because we tie our worth to those things. So money, prestige, fame, whatever it is. And so what I try to work with clients to do is like, it's not bad to have goals. Have your goals. Like that's how people get better. Whatever. Have your goals. Don't correlate that with your worth. Because whether you have $10 or $10 million, what makes you worthy is on the inside. It's who you are. You just existing gives you worth. And so I think that we get caught in those cycles because, again, historically, how have we been valued? Yeah. Productivity. What can you do? And if you can't do anything, you're not valuable. And I think we have internalized those messages over generations. And now, again, we're trying to undo that. It's very difficult. Oh, absolutely. Because I think it's ingrained in us. Isn't that like epigenetics? I mean, I feel like I've been hearing that term quite a bit. But can you explain a little bit more about it? Mm -hmm. Ooh, I'm going to try. Okay, so... Basically, epigenetics is this idea, and I'm going to just very broadly, that historically over time, trauma has changed our genome. And so the way certain markers that we have on our DNA, some things that are different in our genetic makeup, whether we're talking about Black folks, whether we're talking about First Nations folks, because of historical trauma, now when you look at certain aspects of our DNA, it's different. And so that like variation leads to some sort of externalizing things that we see, right? And so not only have things passed down just sociologically, so like from this person being raised by this person, but biologically inside my body, there are things that are different because of what my ancestors endured. So that's in a nutshell, epigenetics, and it gets way more complicated than that. But ultimately, it's that this intergenerational trauma has the ability to alter our DNA. So do you think as psychologists, would you recommend that Black people have Black psychologists, Black therapists, Black psychiatrists, and all of that because they would have a little bit more insight around how to help us because they are us, they look like us, and they've experienced what we've experienced? Yes, 100%. And in a perfect world, I wish that that were the case. I think the unfortunate reality is like for me, for example, I haven't been able to take a new client in maybe like a year because the need is so great. And there just aren't that many of us out there to fill the need. And I think a lot, don't want to get on a soapbox, but a lot of that has to do with the way we're trained as clinicians, like in this whitewashed system of education and therapy. So Because the one thing that I hear when people come to me for the first time is before I had such and such white clinician and I had to spend 45 of my 50 minutes explaining the Black experience to them. Child, listen, when I say 
Because I have had white therapists and I'll just be saying stuff. And sometimes I see their face and I'm like, they don't know what I just said. So like, let me back up. Let me explain so that she could therapy me right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, because I don't think she has the context. I have a black therapist now and it just hits different. But I think that for me, there's benefit because there's all this stuff I don't have to explain. He already gets it. Yes. Absolutely. And I think that in the event that that's not the case, I definitely think there are white people who understand that they don't get it and don't burden people with explaining it, but more so approach things in a, like, I want to understand you in your world type of way. Not like, well, tell me. No, it's not like that. (laughs) I think that there are definitely allies out there, white clinicians that can be Helpful, but like you said, I think it's going to be a different context. So there are going to be things. So even like when I work with Black men, I don't know what it's like to be a Black man because that's not what I am. And so there are certain things that it's like, okay, like tell me about that experience so that I can understand it, not as I think it happens, but as you lived it. And I think that, again, for white clinicians working with people of color, that's just what they got to do. But I think sometimes they don't want to do that labor. They don't feel like they have to do that labor because we're all the same. I don't know where they heard that at, but I think there's a lot of sitting with white clinicians in spaces is frustrating because there are still so many people that carry that, that think colorblindness is helpful, like a helpful therapeutic tool. And in this year of 2021, I don't know why that's still a thing, but it absolutely is. Right, like what? Oh my God. I mean, even when I, like in my DNI practice, when people are like, well, if we just tolerate each other, okay. That was in the 80s, and that is not what we should have been doing with that whole commercial series. No one likes to be tolerated, so why would we even start there? Let's start with accepting and move towards appreciation. Like, what is that going to look like? So colorblindness means that you're part of the problem. Yes, 100%. Right? If you Mm -hmm. don't see color, we can't be friends. I don't even understand. So this last question that I'm just dying to ask you, For your Black clients, do you do anything like special with them? Are you able to serve them in a different way because you understand the backdrop of our story? I do feel like with my Black clients, like I'm always, and this is also just because of the work I do, but I'm always ready to talk about systems of oppression that they find themselves in. So they'll be telling me a story and I'll be like, and you're Black in the workplace. It's being able to drop that. And they're like, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like they just (laughs) know. Whereas if I was talking about this in a group of clinicians, like I'm always waiting for someone to be like, do you think culture played a role? (laughs) Yes, it did. It always does. (laughs) Right. But I do think being able to have those conversations just without hesitation. I think also this past summer was difficult for me with everything that was going on and just being Black in America with everything going on and then holding space for Black people to process their trauma collectively. I always tell people being a therapist is like, think about the worst thing someone has ever told you and think about that happening eight times in a row. That's what being a therapist is like. And I'm thankful to have, to me, that's my gift, right? To share with people is the ability to do that. I don't know how many times I would get on a session with somebody virtually and they'd be like, are you good? And I literally be like near tears every time. Like, no, I'm not, it's fine. But the fact that they knew and they could tell and they're like, of course, you're not good. And so we could have more of a collaborative exchange versus, again, with my clients that are not black. It almost feels like, like, don't ask me that. 
<laughs> right. Don't ask. Like, now I feel like, don't sympathize with me in that. Like, I don't want that from you. Which, again, no shade to them. I think that they're well-intentioned, but the impact is different. You know what I'm saying? hmm It absolutely hits different. I absolutely resonate with that. Oh, my goodness, Dr. Vanessa. This has been amazing. Yes. Is there anything you'd like to add? Is there a way that we can stay in touch? Yes. Yes. So Vivid Insights Consulting, that's my consulting firm. You can find me there on the interwebs, on Algorithm Internet. Just look me up. Vivid Insights (laughs) Consulting. You can find me on social media at Dr. Vanessa Hintz. But Therapy is proactive, people. You can go and do it and it don't mean you crazy. That's the last thing I'll leave everybody with. Yes, I love it. <laughs> Transforming the thought process. Because yes. I know in our community, we think therapy is for crazy people. Mm-hmm. So what can we do to normalize that? This has been amazing, Dr. Yes. Vanessa. Thank Thanks you. so much for coming to Alum Talks. Thank you so much. All right, y'all. You know the requirement. You are required to lead from every seat you sit in. Make sure you share this with a friend who needs the tea. We'll see y'all soon. Did you enjoy this episode of Alum Talks? Please share this episode with another incredible Black leader. Rate this episode five stars and follow us on social media. We are on LinkedIn and Facebook as Alum and Instagram as Alum Milwaukee. Remember, that's A-A-L-A-M-I-L-W-A-U-K-E-E. And if you've got questions or a topic recommendation, email us at info at alummilwaukee.org. Alum, advancing leaders, accelerating change. 